Welcome to Shoot This Now, the podcast where we talk about stories that should be made into movies. I am your only host this week, Tim Malloy, because my co-host Matt Donnelly is in Europe doing something nefarious. Our wonderful guest this week is Eugene Jarecki, director of the outstanding new documentary, The King. This is a film that draws a parallel between Elvis Presley and the United States and postulates that we as a country are in the fat Elvis stage of our career, that we are basically trying to avoid death in the toilet and that we have a chance to do that still, but that we really need to change our ways. Um, obviously, on this podcast, we talk about, as I said, stories that should be made into movies, and we talk about two things that I would really like to see as big screen features. One is the story of the prisoners, a group of African-American prisoners in the late 1940s, early 1950s, who recorded from behind bars and were a big influence on Elvis, or at least were some sort of influence on Elvis. Elvis is often held up as the epitome of the American dream, a person who rose from abject poverty to become the king. And I like the story of the prisoners because it tells a sort of counter-narrative, the story of the forgotten Americans, people who had talent and had ability and worked very hard, but are basically forgotten. I don't think anyone listening, or I would venture that a lot of people listening have never heard of the prisoners. Um, So we talk about them. We also talk about Colonel Tom Parker, uh, who my wife describes as the human embodiment of capitalism. He is the person responsible for some of Elvis's most contested business deals, uh, including all of the Elvis films and the long Las Vegas run that came to be a symbol of Elvis's decline. We talk about Tom Parker, what he represented for Elvis, what he represents for the country, whether we're all getting kind of taken by a Tom Parker. I think you're really going to enjoy this talk with Eugene Jarecki. He is a mesmerizing speaker. I really recommend that you go see The King, and I hope you enjoy this talk. So the first thing I wanted to ask, do you like Elvis? Oh, profoundly. Um, You couldn't spend this many years of your life on a subject unless you loved them very passionately. And uh, my love of Elvis, I suppose, is inextricable from my love of the American dream itself. Whatever we think that American dream is, whatever that American dream was meant to be, whatever we hope it one one day might become, um, one doesn't have to love the American dream to think that the American dream has been available to all. In fact, it's been very much for so many people like a kind of holy grail that they never quite get to reach. But that doesn't mean its principles or the ideas of freedom and opportunity and equality that it suggests aren't the most important ideas for any of us who believe in democracy. So Elvis is a magnificent, majestic, lovable, modest, genuine, genuine artist coming out of uh, rural background and making it all the way to the top. So, of course, how could one see him as anything other than a manifestation of our our deepest held dreams for the human condition? That it all goes complicated uh, is where we have work to do. So I consider my job is a job of tough love. I have enormous love of Elvis, but it is the kind of love that's willing to be tough love, like a real friend, not just a friend who blows smoke up your ass. I'm so glad that Chuck D is in your movie as prominently as he is because my introduction to Elvis when I was about 14 years old was, of course, the Public Enemy song where he says Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Straight up racist. The sucker was simple and plain motherfucking man John Wayne. And so for years, I took Elvis as nothing but a symbol of cultural appropriation. 
and through my wife, who was the child of Irish immigrants, who came over here with nothing and really lived the American dream, yes. um, worked hard from nothing and were able to get what they wanted in this country. Um, and through their love of Elvis, because Elvis really epitomized America for them, I was able to appreciate Elvis in a different way and appreciate him as a person um, and not just as a symbol of appropriation. Yes. Well, Chuck D's role in the film is unimaginably profound for me. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's the most important interview that I was able to capture for the film for a lot of reasons. Certainly, I went to Chuck D carrying a bit of prejudice. You know, prejudice is always a burden. It's something hmm. that you carry until some act of God or some external force smacks you hard on the head and makes you drop your prejudice. And my prejudice with Chuck D was only that I identified him with that single lyric that Elvis was a racist. And he has spoken about that over the years uh, at times when asked about it and when pushed on it. And I wanted to talk to Chuck D and I suppose I thought I would, I would get um, a deep answer, but I could never have imagined the depth of Chuck D's thinking on this matter yeah. because I had never heard anyone think so deeply on this matter. The way he thinks about what racism in that lyric means is far from what a superficial glance at the song might lead one to believe. Mm -hmm. And I think with the um, passage of time and Chuck's own uh, evolution into a, a, real, a, a real fixture in American culture, um, Chuck has developed a way of understanding his outrage, which is a continuing outrage that any of us should feel about the crimes committed against black America, and yet at the same time, the incredible magnanimity he actually has for Elvis as an artist and as he points out in the film. You know, when Elvis was a young man and was willing to play music that was influenced by black people as a white guy, yeah. Chuck points out that's to be lauded, that's to be praised, that's exactly what we want in America or anywhere is cultural sharing. You know, as Chuck says in the film, you would never tell a young African-American kid that he shouldn't play Mozart because he doesn't have German roots. That would be racist. In right. fact, the accusation that Elvis, by playing black music, that that in and of itself makes him racist, Chuck dismisses that in the film beautifully, elegantly, and very quickly. Yeah. And what he points out instead is that racism lies elsewhere. Certainly it lies in the systemic racism of this country, which robs from black people at every turn. It began when we stole the black people themselves, and we've been robbing from black people in every American industry ever since. So there we see the racism, and Elvis becomes enveloped in that industry. And what does he do to set himself apart after black music and after black people have buoyed Elvis to become the extraordinary success he's become? Is he there for the black community when they need him? So mm -hmm. for example, Chuck D. Van Jones and uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson of the U.S. military and who was chief of, uh, chief of staff to Colin Powell, they get into a conversation in the middle of the film, which I find deeply powerful, about where was Elvis when the civil rights movement needed him mm -hmm. and did he step up? And I think that's a deeply legitimate question. And I think uh, at that point, Chuck turns and he says, listen, the guy who played the music, thumbs up, cool guy, wonderful, cultural sharing. Yeah. The guy who didn't help that same community that influenced him when they needed him, where was he? And do we, uh, should we expect of our public leaders and should we expect of ourselves stepping up in a democracy? And I think the answer, I think that answers itself. Chuck makes the point that probably Sun Records tried to get a black artist across before they tried to get Elvis across and couldn't do it. 
Yes. And one of the groups that they tried to bring across was the prisoners, which is a group that I find absolutely fascinating and have always wondered where is the story? Where is the movie about the prisoners? This is a group of African-American prisoners in Tennessee who record a single from behind bars, which sometimes hip-hop artists have done now. I mean, Slick Rick has done it yep. um, and others. Um, but that's an incredible story. Did you look into the prisoners and do you think that that has potential as a feature? It's a great question. I mean, I think that uh, the prisoners' legacy goes back all the way to Eugene Debs, after whom I'm very proud to say I, I, I was named. Uh, Eugene Debs was a political radical leader in the turn of the 20th century who actually ran for president from behind bars, which I think is one of the coolest things ever. <laughs> and at that time, he was quoted as saying, while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. Mm. The daring and the courage and the passion that someone who already has traded deeply for the system because of one thing or another, whether it's because they were uh, in a prejudiced way targeted for the kind of criminal justice abuses we see today, or whether in Eugene Debs' case, he was actually like somebody criticizing the current figure in the White House. He was criticizing the American power structure, and he was put in jail for it. Mm -hmm. So he understood very well the compromises that democracy was suffering. Mm -hmm. And uh, from jail makes himself so uh, s such a figure. Now, most people don't even know about Eugene Debs. Most people don't know he ran for president from behind bars. Yeah. And uh, far too often, a story like The Prisoners is going to get lost to history. And so, yeah, a movie about it would make America look very, very deeply into um, not only the crimes we commit yeah. against the least of our brothers and our brothers in general, but also to understand the way in which we double down on that where once we've done it, we then try to sort of cover the tracks of our work and we marginalize the voices that try to speak truth to power, particularly yeah. from the margins of a jail cell. Yeah. We try to marginalize that. So if you did make a movie of it, people would be in that situation where they think, how did I not know this? Yeah. What am I doing? Am I asleep? One reason I think there hasn't been a movie is that the lead singer of the group was a convicted rapist. But then again... He's an African-American man who's a convicted rapist in the South in the 1940s. Right. Even this president just pardoned Jack Johnson. Yeah. So we have a lot of revision, re revising to do when we go back and use words like rapist. I wouldn't use that word in a sentence. I wouldn't say he's a convicted rapist. I would say that at the time, the American court system included him in a wholesale uh, accusation and hanging without juries of black men uh, due to, frankly, white male insecurity. And mm -hmm. once we adjust for that, we'll find the small, tiny subset within those who were accused and charged of crimes of people who actually committed a crime. Mm -hmm. We don't know what this person did. Mm -hmm. How much do you think they influenced Elvis? Well, I think a lot. I mean, I think everything in the in Elvis was an extremely sensitive uh, consumer of black music and consumer of the music of his time. You know, one of the things David Simon, the creator of The Wire, who's in the film, points yeah. out is that the, the history of American music is racial appropriation, as it's called. In other words, we have constantly had appropriation where that is what made American music so fantastic was the polyglot nature of it. You know, he tells a story about how during, after the, uh, after the war, you had uh, the military selling off cornets, military cornets, for like a dollar a pop or something like that. And you had it happening in a place like New Orleans where there happened 
happened to be a large a- African-American contention combining with French music and, and the music of the bayou, and, the, and boom, you have jazz. So mm-hmm. weird things like that, like a military trumpet wholesale uh, it's a, you know, a wholesale event suddenly becomes the source of an American musical tradition that defines America for the world. So in that sense, I think that Elvis is a product, you know, ten, uh, there's that idea from, from um, Walt Whitman that we are all sort of coming out of this, this mixture, this American mixture, and Elvis Presley is influenced by all that he has met, as Tennyson yeah. says. You know, and as a result, you see coming out of him Hank Williams. You also see coming out of him the black legends that he was listening to the music of from Arthur Crudup to others. And for sure, the prisoners are in that mix. Mm-hmm. I can't single them out and say what goes on in a man's mind. You mm-hmm. can only say this is a sensitive person. You can hear a wide range of influences in his music, and particularly you can hear that kind of choral arranging in his music, and I'm sure you would find that there's a link. Yeah. One thing that really shocked me in the movie, at one point someone says, when you're visiting all of the landmarks of Elvis's life, that he was conceived in prison? No, no. The, what they say is that he was, uh, Elvis's father was in prison. Yes. Alongside a man in the film who was conceived in that prison. All right. So the man talking is the son of a prisoner of, of Parchment Prison, where Elvis's father was also held. And when Elvis's father went to prison, Elvis was a young boy, very right. young boy. And he ended up living with his mother in that house that we visit in the, in the film that the woman owns. Yeah. So the, Elvis, as a young boy, and his mom are living in this poor part of town, the black part of town, when Elvis's father was put in Parchment. Yeah. I've been to that house. It, it's incredible what he came from. He really did come from nothing. Yeah. And you see the outhouse, even yep. you see the little recreation of the church where he where he's staying. But that house, that's his birth house. Mm-hmm. And it, and he, you want to see you want to see run down. Go see the house he was in it that I'm talking about. Yeah, because that's in the white part of town, mm-hmm. and that and that is in the kind of tourist setup that they've made. And you definitely get to see that stuff, and it's real. He was born in a little, little one room shack, and there's a little outhouse, and there's a little church. All that stuff is real, and they yeah. put it there museum style, it still works, and you really get a bona fide sense of what it was like until you get in the car we were driving and you drive across to the poor part of town and you really see how people still today yeah. are living in the kind of outrageous poverty that we like to ignore yeah. as being a part of the American story right now. And it is it is basic living for a majority of people in this country, yeah. and that's shocking. And when you really see where he was really living when his dad went to prison, it's a community where that's still going on, where fathers are still being carted off and people are trying to make ends meet. And, you know, for most of those people, the American dream won't be available. They're black. They don't have the luck that Elvis had. They don't have the sort of uh, constellations aligning in the way that they that it happened for him. He had incredible talent. I take nothing away from him. Yeah. But he also had chances that the people on that block don't have today. Yeah. Is he a product of the prison industrial complex? I mean he must have the memory of his father being on in prison. That must be one of his most crucial memories. He must always have that hanging over him. Well, I would, I would venture to say that it's important we be precise about America's history of incarceration, mm-hmm. which is a grotesque history, and the evolution of a prison industrial motivation for incarceration. Mm-hmm. The prison industrial complex is a, is a relatively modern phenomenon compared mm-hmm. to what Elvis' his father was experiencing. In those days, racism classism, and other forms of abuse certainly played a role in why people went to prison, and they went to prison and were treated to 
extraordinary levels of inhumanity, particularly when we compare it to our Western partners in Europe, for example. Uh, it's, it's, we are really a frontier of brutality at that time in comparison, particularly if you see what happens to African Americans. I mean, you don't see be people being lynched in Europe. You know, yeah. this is a, we were, we had um, redefined a new low for the world at that time as an incarcerator among Western democracies. So th at that time, Elvis's father is witnessing the equation between poor whites and poor blacks. Mm -hmm. He basically forged a check because he didn't have enough money to get by with a family. And he forges a check and he finds himself cheek by jowl alongside black people for whom that's a daily plight. And so he's really a witness to the the big lie that we've forgotten to, to bear in mind, which is that it doesn't matter in this country if you're black or white or anything else. If you're poor, you're poor. Mm -hmm. And the system is stacked against you. And that's what Elvis's father learned early. And I suppose that resonates through Elvis. I think Elvis has an identification with the underdog from early on, not abstractly, he is one. And that's different than prison industrial. What we have now gotten to, where in recent weeks, this administration erected concentration camps for juveniles. Mm -hmm. Let's say that again. They made concentration camps for juveniles. Hey, let's double down on it. They made profit-driven concentration camps for juveniles run by private companies that profit from the incarceration of juveniles. When you've gotten to that point, that's a whole order of magnitude past whatever depravities Elvis and his father were encountering. Because when you don't stop depravities when they're happening, mm -hmm. they snowball because you create new precedents and then you build on those toward an even, un, uh, even more unholy set of outcomes. And that's where we are now. The thesis of the film, if I have this correct, is that we're kind of in our fat Elvis stage. Um, we're, in the part, we're in the aspect where we started off very promisingly, and now we may be in a severe decline. Um, that's sort of the central metaphor. And, uh, we, and we may bounce back. I mm -hmm. mean, it depends how you handle that. It mm -hmm. depends how you handle bad news. And it depends whether this society uh, has the soul and the depth of a commitment to democracy to recognize the kind of barbarism that's at the gate and that is storming the gates and whether we're going to rise up against that or not. Mm -hmm. You know, that Hamilton show, when it talks about rise up, rise up, rise up, it's a, it's a memory. It's a nostalgic look back to when the framers rose up and they give it amazing beat and they give it an amazing energy. And the real question you have to have when you leave that theater is, is that a modern anthem? Are we going to rise up? Are people actually going to stop the abuses that are happening to them? Or is that just some sort of cute thing we think back from people who wore funny wigs and powder on their face? And if that's all it is, then we've seen the short, happy life of the American Republic. Mm. And if it is something else, we may see an extraordinary new day. There have been more social movements born under this rapacious administration than in my lifetime combined. Mm -hmm. So that's an amazing signal of good to go against yeah. the daily signals of bad that are coming out of the the sort of public toilet of his Oval Office. <laughs> in the movie, when we introduce the colonel, that's when things sort of take a turn for Elvis. He has this manager who is taking 50% of his, of his earnings, which is a ridiculous amount. Um, he's making him make bad, cheap decisions like all of the movies. He's sending him to Las Vegas. Um, the colonel is kind of responsible for the fat Elvis period. And my wife has said the colonel is the human embodiment of capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think that's really well put. Why do you think we haven't heard the full story of the colonel? I mean, he has this sure. mysterious background. Sure. People who will defend the colonel will say, yeah, he took 50% of Elvis's 
take on things. But it was 50% of the moon. It was 50% of more than anybody had ever been paid. And that's absolutely true. But it's a Faustian bargain. If you look at the fine print of what Elvis had to sign up for, it obliterated his authenticity as an artist. It dumped any level of control. It led to 30-some-odd horrendous Mm B-movies. It led to him becoming kind of a figure in rerun. The idea of an artist who had been so inventive when he began continuing continuing to invent went out the window in exchange for endless contracts in Hollywood, endless contracts in Vegas, the very same kind of endless contracting that killed Michael Jackson Mm -hmm. will ultimately kill Alvis. And you can put all that at the colonel's feet, and there's some truth in that, but you also have to recognize, as Jerry Schilling, Elvis's best friend, pointed out to me, that that wouldn't be entirely fair because Elvis loved the colonel, and he loved what the colonel was doing for him. He loved being Elvis Presley. And he signed up for those seductions as a grown-up of free will. So I think it's analogous to the American people and how we have to think of ourselves. We are certainly victims. When we grow up in school, they don't put in our textbooks that we run kind of a fig leaf of a democracy, but it's really a capitalist system hijacked by a bunch of really badass billionaires who own the world and make us kind of pay the, you know, sort of, they, they make us sort of dance, tap dance the way they want us to. This entire society has been hijacked by the 0.0001% to their benefit, and nobody really has the energy to figure out why and to go up against it because people are so strapped. Mm-hmm. They're strapped just to make ends meet or to be who they need to be or to figure out how life got so weird. So all that politics is like one big add-on. So in a way, we're victims. But at the same time, we are making choices. We're making grown-up choices. We are like an abused person who keeps going back to the same type of abusive relationship with this two-party system that just abuses the American people. So after a while, what happened? We got so abused and so fed up. Like any abused person, the American people said, you know, I'm so fed up of hearing the same crap. The next person who walks in that door just saying anything different, anything, the next (laughs) fool who walks in, I'll go with them. Well, enter this monster. And so they signed up with him. People are figuring out now what a horrendous mistake that was. But that's just what happens with the rebound guy. He's just a rebound guy. He's a disastrous rebound guy. And it may cost the world dearly. But that rebound choice, we know that people only make that when they haven't done the inner work they need to do. They keep coming back to the same thing. I'm no different. You know, any addictive tendencies I have, I'll do them and do them and do them until the floor drops so low that all of a sudden you have to do something different. Well, is the floor low enough yet? That's the question. You have to hit a rock bottom as an alcoholic or as an addict before you decide to make a change. And they keep redefining rock bottom. I mean, didn't you think rock bottom would be that you'd blow away children in classrooms and the NRA, the most evil organization in America, would not be able to convince people that there's any gray area in that? There's no gray area in that. This doesn't happen in other countries for a reason, and the reason is the availability of guns and the loose gun laws that we have and the absurdity of the way that the NRA has hijacked public policy for their own profit. And they've fooled into immorality their followers. They've made their followers unchristian agents of an incredibly sinful model that is taking lives and violating the Bible. So did you ever think you'd be able to see something that crazy perpetrated on people? And the only reason you can is they have such an enormous amount of concentrated power and wealth that they spend that money to confuse the public and to propagandize the public. Propaganda works. It's why people pay for it. We've all kind of struck this Faustian bargain where we think, I don't like this system of the rich really dominating things, the 0.001% owning so much of the wealth. But also there's a part of us that thinks, well, maybe that could be me. Maybe we shouldn't tear down this entire Isn't system. Isn't that the biggest bullshit in the history of the world? <laughs> That's the dumbest. I want to get that con going. 
yeah. where I can get people to let me have free reign over anything because I tell them, wink, wink, someday it could be you. Really? How, how long are you going to wait for that? When has trickle-down ever worked? You know, for example, I keep hearing how the economy is strong. We don't know that the economy is strong. We only know that Wall Street is humming. Right. When was the last time Wall Street humming has ever been demonstrated to help everyday people? I haven't seen that. The banks got their giant bailout. Did the people benefit from that? These guys get incredible pay packets. Did the, bene did the people benefit from that? Yeah. They get deregulation so they can do more and more abuse. Do we benefit from that to outweigh the incredible damage it does to our rights and safety as citizens and our well-being? Of course not. It's a joke. And it's a joke being the, the, the rich are laughing their asses off right now at everybody else. And the question is, do people want to keep being laughed at? And uh, if they do, once again, we will see the short, happy life of the American Republic. And if it becomes true that you can fool people sometimes, but you can't fool them all the time, then the American people will rebound. And I think the social movements we've been seeing this year are the first glimmer. But if we just say, oh, isn't that nice that Emma Gonzalez is so daring and so clear-minded and so bold and such an inspiring communicator, great, she'll take care of it. That's just one Emma Gonzalez, no matter how remarkable she is. If you're not doing your part, you are disappointing those children. You are disappointing Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. You're disappointing anybody in this country, the teachers who struck in red states to, to get better teaching conditions for those who, who help our children. Those are people putting themselves out on the line. Are we putting ourselves out on the line every day, the people, we the people, who need to be doing it? If we're not asking these questions that I'm asking over and over of myself, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to make sure, am I doing it? I'm out here on the road trying to push this movie and trying to push the ideas that we're talking about today. Because if I was doing any less, I'd feel like an absolute loser, mm -hmm. like I was on the absolute wrong side of history. And my carbon footprint to do that already has me feeling like a mm -hmm. loser. Even though I'm trying to do right, I'm still thinking, should I walk? How do I do this? What role do I play in the society? How can I offset? the footprint that's involved with me making movies and running around the, the yeah. planet. Well, besides people feeling exhausted and people being manipulated, one of the reasons that the system continues to exist is that people do have faith in it because of a story like Elvis. They go, oh, a poor boy from Mississippi really can rise up and become the king. Well, first of all, a poor white boy maybe, mm -hmm. a white boy maybe, but any other poor boy is so rare. Yeah. So he's a beneficiary of a dream that was already stacked against so many people. But yeah, occasionally it happens. But whenever you're looking at any system, you've got to banish the exceptions. Right. The exceptions will just confuse you. Because what you have to look at is how does it go for the masses of people? You know, Dostoevsky said you can judge any country by the quality of its prisons. Yeah. Stands for something. It means don't look at the bright side of how a country conducts itself. Look how it conducts itself in a time of duress or in a condition of duress. Look how America responded to 9-11. Right. Did we respond with magnanimity? Were we a world leader who tried to understand the inequities in the world that could possibly enable a young person to be recruitable to kill themselves for anything? A young person, all people want freedom. This lie that they hate our freedoms, that's just a way of ignoring why they are recruitable. So the real question here becomes, you know, are we going to keep telling ourselves the lies that we tell ourselves that betray the truth, which mm -hmm. is look at how we reacted to that. We've conducted $3 trillion worth of military activity in response to an attack on 9-11 that they say bin Laden spent half a million dollars on. So not only is that foolish looking and embarrassing for a significant country in the world, let alone the most powerful country at that time in the world, but we've squandered our power since. I have to say a most powerful country at that time. We're not that country anymore. So how far are we going to go with this to keep trading away our power through weak and feeble and, and embarrassing reactions to things that need leadership?
What do you think Elvis would make of all this? I mean, uh, what would this poor kid whose dad was in prison, who never thought he would go anywhere, what would he make of what our country has turned into? I think Elvis, listen, I can't speak for Elvis Presley's mind. I can only tell you in his body language. When you see Elvis make the song In the Ghetto in the later part of his career, you can tell that Elvis understands that he has a role to play, however well or poorly he's played it. He has a role to play as an artist in trying to address the incredible unfairness in American society. And if you listen to the lyrics of that song, it's pretty clear where he's coming from, and I think it's therefore pretty clear how he would see the injustices that we're seeing today. I think he's put his cards on the table pretty clearly in that song, and I know the song was deeply important to him. People, don't you understand? Your child needs a helping hand. He'll grow to be an angry young man someday. Take a look at you and me Are we too blind to see or Do we simply turn our heads And look the other way Well, the world turns And a hungry little boy with a running nose Plays in the street as the cold wind blows in the ghetto And his hunger burns 